Again, I'll, I will share more later, but uh, Pastor Trey will begin and he'll be here in March. And what we plan to do is have him spend a little bit of time here at our main campus in the north side. Uh, we want him to just catch our DNA and get to know us and to equip him before we completely release him as campus pastor at in Homestead. And I do want to publicly just thank Pastor Rich Noble, who has served as an interim campus pastor for our congregation at Homestead for their patience as, as we have um, gone through this process. So it's exciting times. Let me open with prayer before we go to God's word. Father, in all of these services, just that third song that really speaks of surrender and making room for you has has hit and connected with my spirit. Uh, your word says that faith comes by hearing, and that's hearing your word, scripture, holy scripture, the Bible. Um, faith does not come through the words of a preacher. Faith does not come through uh, news stations or culture. It is your word. So we now need to hear from you and your word. I pray that your spirit would remove all distractions, that as we come to you today, Lord, as we bring our backgrounds, our perspectives, our priorities, and even our opinions, that all of those would be removed and we would have an unfiltered word from you today. So spirit of God, do that in the name of Jesus Christ. Everyone said? Amen. Amen. Thank you to those of you who joined us uh, this past Monday, on the, on the day when our nation honored and recognized Dr. Martin Luther King, we asked you and gave you prayer cards last weekend at 6 p.m. I know many of you did that. My wife and I joined in our living room together to do that. Let me challenge you, too, um, not to make that prayer of justice and peace a one-time-a-year thing. Um, just continue and uh, keep that card, and may it be a regular rhythm in your times of prayer. Last weekend, we talked about how worship without justice is just noise. And what that statement means is that as followers of Jesus, our faith requires us to love and to defend those who are oppressed, overlooked, and outcast. We opened to the Old Testament, the book to the Old Testament, and heard from the prophet Amos and realized that any religious devotion which ignores bringing help, hope, and healing to the vulnerable is just noise or it's meaningless. And that righteous justice is founded upon the principles of what Jesus said were the two greatest commandments, and that is to love God with all of your heart and to love your neighbor as yourself. We were challenged by Dr. King's words in that letter, letter from a Birmingham jail, where he said the question is not whether we will be extremists, but what kind of extremists will we be? Will we be extremists for love or for hate? Will we be extremists for the preservation of injustice or for the extension of justice? Jesus himself demonstrated extreme love for those living in the margins, those whom society excluded and cast out. He was an extremist for love, and so too we must be extremists for love. Love of all people, especially those 
whom society excludes. Last year, we did a series called DNA, ACAC DNA, and there are five markers of our DNA. That final marker says we strive to be like Jesus. How many here today would raise your hand with a desire, an honest desire that you want to be like Jesus? We all do. If you're following Christ, you want to be like Jesus. Well, today we are going to see how Jesus responds and how he speaks about the value of life. Our text for today is Matthew chapter 12, verse 9 through 14. If you have your Bible on your phone or a hard copy, if you will, go ahead and open it up. If not, that's okay. They'll put it on the screens. But this is God's word for us today. Matthew chapter 12, verse 9 through 14. Then Jesus went over to their synagogue where he noticed a man with a deformed hand. The Pharisees asked Jesus, does the law permit a person to work by healing on the Sabbath? They were hoping he would say yes so they could bring charges against him. And he answered, if you had a sheep that fell into a well on the Sabbath, wouldn't you work to pull it out? Of course you would. And how much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Yes, the law permits a person to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, hold out your hand. So the man held out his hand and it was restored just like the other one. Then the Pharisee called a meeting. The Pharisees called a meeting to plot how to kill Jesus. Just as we saw last week, Jesus confronting the religious leaders of their day because they were more concerned about obeying the law rather than loving people. Here we go. We find it happening again. Now, if you go back eight verses and look at the beginning of Matthew chapter 12, it begins by the Pharisees getting upset because Jesus's disciples had broken off heads of grain to eat while they were walking through the grain fields. You see, according to Jewish law, no work was to be done, and that included breaking off heads of grain. No work was to be done on the Sabbath. And from the perspective of the Pharisees, Jesus' disciples were guilty of such a crime. Jesus, however, challenges them, and he points to the Old Testament example of King David breaking Jewish law in the Old Testament. And once again, he emphasizes the priority of mercy over religious practice. And he also declares himself as Lord of the Sabbath, thereby elevating himself above the law. So Jesus is now going to redirect the anger of the Pharisees from his disciples onto him by demonstrating exactly what he means. In those few verses that we read, Jesus approaches the synagogue of the Pharisees and there he walks up and he sees a man that has a deformed hand. What I love when you read through the Gospels, when you read the story of Jesus in the Gospels, think about how often Jesus seeks out and he is drawn to the people that society excludes. Jesus always seems to find and seek and have conversations and engage with the sick, the poor, the hurting, the ones that all of culture and society has excluded. Those are the people that Jesus seeks out. And it's the same here at the synagogue. He seeks this man who has a deformed hand. And how many of you know the guy with a deformed hand could care less what day of the week it is? All he wants is his hand healed. But there's an argument over, well, can you heal somebody's hand on the Sabbath? I mean, it seems pretty silly. And to Jesus, it had to seem silly, and it was. 
But seeing another opportunity to trap him, the Pharisees ask Jesus, okay, well, does the law permit you to heal this man's hand on the Sabbath? Jesus answers their question by asking a question that reveals the hardness of their heart. And it also reveals the significant worth of every human being. He asks, if you had a sheep that fell into a well on the Sabbath, wouldn't you work to pull it out? Of course you would. Jesus continues, then how much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Jesus says, yes, of course the law permits a person to do good on the Sabbath. Jesus basically asks them, what is the value of a human life? And that is the question I ask all of you today. What is the value of a human life? This is a question Jesus is pressing with the Pharisees. And it's a question each and every one of us must answer. If you've been here a part of ACAC for any given amount of time, especially for a couple of years, you know that every January there are two weekends where the sermons, um, and we, ad we address from the pulpit, two particular issues. One is the weekend before our nation honors Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. We preach about biblical justice and our responsibility to stand for injustice in the world. Typically, the weekend following, we speak to the sanctity of life. Now, why are these significant issues in our church? Why are they significant issues in our culture? Why do we intentionally address injustice in our world, honoring the work of MLK, and also recognizing sanctity of life? Here's why. These issues are biblical issues that are rooted in the value and the dignity of human life. Because all human life is sacred. All human life bears our created image. And all life belongs to God. The creator of the universe has imprinted upon every human being his divine image. The child in a mother's womb the person with Down syndrome, the prisoner with a life sentence, the refugee fleeing a tyrannical dictator, the widow or single mom, dad raising three children on his or her own, the poor living in the streets, the elderly facing a myriad of health complications, all, each and every one and every person in between is created in the image of God. And all of their lives are deeply sacred. As Jesus followers... We believe that this is foundational from the creation chapters in the Bible where God said this in the first chapter of Genesis. God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, all the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings, us, all of us, in his own image, in the image of who? God, in the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Every life has meaning because every life is created in the image of God and there are no exceptions. Look at the person that's sitting to your left and right. Look at them, look them deep in the eye. They are created in the image of God. 
even if you got in a fight with your spouse on the way to church this morning. My wife and I didn't ride together, so I can't say that. I love you, honey. I know you're here somewhere. All of us are created in the image of God. It is the image of God or this theological word that we use called the imago Dei that makes us human in the first place. This is the beginning of what we call a biblical or sacred worldview. The belief that God created and imprinted his image upon every person, thereby giving dignity and value to every single human life, despite their age of development, despite the color of their skin, despite their age, and despite their ability to contribute to society. So the important thing for us to know today and to live out is that following Jesus requires advocating for life in a culture of death. Each and every one of us, if we claim to be a follower of Jesus, if we have placed our faith in Christ and are a part of a community of faith, that faith requires us to advocate for all life in the culture of death. Pastor Allen, what do you mean by saying we live in a culture of death? I believe that our world lives in a culture of death ever since sin entered the world in Genesis chapter 3. Since sin entered into our world, all human beings have been living in a culture of death. The brother of Jesus, James, speaks about this. He writes about it in his letter to the church. James asked the question, what's causing quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? What's that? Sin. He's talking about sin. You want to do what you don't have, so you scheme and you kill to get it. He's talking to the church here, by the way. You're jealous of what others have, but you can't get it, so you fight and wage war to take it away from them. When we talk about the oppressed, the outcast, and the overlooked, this is the root of it. People who want what they don't have so they will push anybody and everybody out of the way into the margins of the boundaries to get what they have. Now, I don't believe we have any dictators here today, but if we looked deep within our heart, we have to acknowledge that sin causes those same emotions within us. And we need to ask ourselves, are there people that we are pushing to the margins to get what we want? Do we scheme? Do we kill maybe by the words that we say to get what we don't have? We live in a culture of death. However, as we do that, as we talk about these delicate but yet extremely important issues of justice and sanctity of life, we have to remember that these issues are spiritual battles. They're not cultural wars. They're not political wars. These are spiritual wars. These are spiritual battles that we face. We live in a battle of two kingdoms. There is a kingdom of light and there is a kingdom of darkness and both have leaders. We know who the kingdom of light leader is. It is Jesus. But the kingdom of darkness has a leader and he is very real and his name is Satan. And Satan has a purpose. Jesus speaks to his purpose in the Gospel of John. Anybody remember that? The thief comes 
To do what? His purpose, to steal, to kill, and to destroy. That is the purpose of the kingdom of darkness, living in a culture of death. He wants to see that culture of death expanded in the world. But the kingdom of light, Jesus said, I have come that you would have life and have it abundantly. But that life and abundance is not just for our own personal gain. It is that people in his kingdom would spread life to all humanity because every person is created in God's image. So today, as we talk about these issues of life, the sanctity of life, the value of life, we must recognize that just as though there are two kingdoms, there are two worldviews. There is a secular worldview that supports the kingdom of darkness, and there is a biblical worldview or a sacred worldview that should align itself with the kingdom of light. Let me explain. Those who do not place their faith in Christ that are outside the community of faith, living in this culture of death, the kingdom of darkness, when it comes to life, the secular worldview believes that life is valued based upon acquired characteristics or ability, meaning life is valued based upon what that person can offer to the world. What characteristics you bring What can you do for the world? What can you do for society? What can you do for culture? Let me give you an example of this. Some of you, I know you're you're doctors. I've had conversations with some of you. You work at Children's Hospital or whatever hospital may be. And there is a push right now when, when science identifies two parents that are having a child. Before that child is born, if it is discovered that that child has Down syndrome, there is a push to abort that child. There is a push to tell those parents, you don't need to have a child or deal with having a child who has Down syndrome. That comes from a secular worldview based upon what that child will offer society. And it's a sin. There's two dear family, two dear families of ours that have two beautiful children. One has a daughter named Anna. The other has a son named Ben that have Down syndrome. And having walked with these families and known them well and known those kids, I can't imagine this world without them. And the contribution that they bring is beautiful. One of the dads told me he didn't understand the full capacity of love until he saw his son, Ben. But a sacred or a secular, excuse me, secular worldview says, what do you offer? And then that is how the value of a life is determined. However, as Christ followers, we must have a theology of life that encompasses from womb to tomb. Our view of the world is shaped not from the opinion of culture. For Hear me on this one. Jesus followed because we fall trapped to this. Our view or perspective of the world is not based on CNN not based on Fox News. It's not based on the internet. It's not based on the opinions of men. Our worldview, how we interpret life, how we interpret our experiences is based on one thing, and that is God's holy word. Jesus' followers must filter all that we experience, all, all of these incredibly tough issues through God's word. This is the foundation of what it means to have a biblical worldview. And in that, in the conversation of life, 
Life is valued based on every person being created in God's image. It's who they are. It's not what they offer. It's who they are. Knowing that even the small child with Down syndrome is created in God's image. So we talk about this biblical versus secular or sacred uh, or secular worldview. I I ran across this a couple weeks ago that is really good. And parents, I want to encourage you to instill this in your children. The difference between a secular and a sacred worldview. I came across this. It's known as the four rights. Let me explain it. Here is a biblical understanding, a biblical worldview, how we view the world from God's eyes, from the expect. First of all, we must know right. We already talked about this. How do we know what is right and wrong? This is foundational. (laughs) Like, we either believe this or we don't. I mean, there's either times where, I mean, it's hard to read. But it can't be our opinions. The book either says what it says or it doesn't, and we either believe it or we don't. So a biblical worldview begins knowing right. How do you know what's right? You look to God's word. Okay, what that leads, knowing right leads to thinking right. The Apostle Paul talks about this, especially in the book of Romans. The first 11 chapters of the book of Romans all are about thinking right, knowing right. He lays out theology, who God is. Sin, entering our world, how we as Christians, as Christ followers, are supposed to live in that. We know right from God's word, which leads to thinking right. In chapter 12, Paul says, don't be conformed to to this world, but be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind, by thinking differently. So knowing what is right leads us to thinking right, which leads us to doing right through the power of the Holy Spirit. This is called transformation, sanctification. We understand what's right. We understand it's really hard. We can't do it in our flesh. So Holy Spirit, we need you to empower us because we know what's right according to your word to do it now in our world. And last, a biblical worldview, we know right, think right, do right. When we do those things, we feel right. But here's the difference. Here's what the world tells you. A secular worldview flips that and says, oh, you feel that way? Well, then that's what you must do. How you feel determines what you do, determines what you think, determines what is right. So now we're back in the book of Judges, like we talked about last year, where everyone does right in their own eyes. That is a secular worldview. God has called us to know right, think right, do right, feel right. I am amazed still sometimes that when we talk about issues of biblical justice, when we talk about the value of a life according to God's word, the sanctity of life, how even in Christ followers that can still trigger emotions. It can still trigger criticism and opposition. And I believe part of that is because we allow those terms and our opinions on that to be shaped by culture rather than being shaped by God's word. We must understand that justice is an issue that flows from a comprehensive view of the value of life. What I mean by that is we have called this series Justice for All. The reason we pursue, the reason we seek justice for all human beings flows from the understanding that all human beings are created in God's image and thereby have value and dignity. 
However, followers of Jesus, we lose our witness in the world when we advocate for one singular life issue over the other. Our theology of life, our comprehensive view of the value of life requires us to seek protection for the unborn. It requires us to care for kids in foster care. It requires us to provide for widows and orphans. It requires us to honor and care for the elderly and those with special needs. It calls us to defend and protect those who are abused. It calls us to seek and to eliminate sex trafficking of human beings. It calls us to speak out against racism and systems in society that perpetuate injustice. It calls us to help and care for the immigrant and the refugee. This is a comprehensive view of valuing life. All of those and everything in between because every human being is created in God's image. Now, It doesn't mean that you may not be, you may be more passionate about one of those than the other. God has may have called you and equipped you to work in one of those areas and fields. That's fine. We understand that. But when we take one of those and elevate them over the other, we lose our witness in the world because they're all life issues. They're all justice issues. I want to step on a few more toes here this morning. Not intentionally, not intentionally. I want to speak to the issue of abortion and why it matters. First of all, I want to say there are no easy answers. And there are no one-size-fits-all answers to the issue of abortion. However, the church must be a voice for the unborn because we understand that life begins at conception. And once a life can be disregarded before birth, we then have become a society that embodies a survival of the fittest mentality. Once again, our answers must be found in Scripture. They must not be found outside the four walls of this church. The psalmist says this, that you made all the delicate inner parts of my body, and God, you knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is is marvelous how well I know it. God, you watched me as I was being formed in utter seclusion, as I was woven together in the dark of the womb. God, you saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. God saw and sees every moment of every human being before they are born. The entire Bible is consistent and clear that life begins at conception. Sacredness of human life is based on the imago Dei of us being created in God's image. However, sacredness of life is also valued through the cross of Jesus Christ. I like using this illustration. I may have done it here once before, but when I was a teenager, young boy, I loved collecting sports cards. I don't know if anybody else was like that. Um, 
I, I grabbed a few before I was uh, on my way to church here this morning. This is a 1987 Don Ross Barry Bonds rookie card. One of my favorites, uh, Joe Green, Steelers, Greg Maddox. Um, this one here, though, is my favorite card, and you won't find it anywhere else because there are only a few made. Uh, my son played basketball in high school, and when he finished his senior year, I, I found out that you could have a custom card made. So this is him. And here's the thing, though. Uh, when I was growing up, I know I'm like that. I just... Uh, here's the thing. When I was young... Uh, also with cards, I don't know if any of you collected cards as well, but they would have magazines that would tell you how much the card is worth. And so I used to love getting that magazine at the convenience store and coming home and, and going, going, man, I total up how much my cards were worth. And I'd go to my dad and I'd say, dad, do you realize this Barry Bonds card is worth $5 and 52 cents? And my dad would just pop the balloon and all the excitement out of the room. And he would say this, son, the only, how you determine value is what someone is willing to pay for it. How many have ever heard that before? And I'm like, well, I don't care what someone's willing to pay for it. I'm telling you it's worth $5.52. My dad's laughing right now if he's watching this because he's right. Something is valued only what somebody is worth paying for it. Now, my son's card, you won't find that anywhere in the world, and it doesn't mean anything to you. Why? Because you're not his dad. I'd empty my bank account for this one. Why? He's my son. Human life is valuable enough that our father, God, himself would become human and die so that every human could have eternal life. God is the one who determined the value of life. You want to know how much your life is worth, how much every human being is worth? It's worth enough that Jesus would die for you. But here's the reality as I close up. A biblical worldview of life will seem extreme to some. And with that, we can expect criticism and opposition. Opposition to the work to the kingdom of God is very real. In our obedience to Christ, we can expect opposition. Jesus faced opposition for his extreme dem demonstration of love, yet he loved to the extreme anyway. Let's go back to our story in 12th chapter of Matthew. Jesus says to the man with the deformed hand, hold out your hand. So the man held out his hand, and it was restored just like the other one. Now look at this next verse. Then the Pharisees called, him, called a meeting to plot how to kill Jesus. If Jesus received criticism and opposition for his extreme love, we are silly to think that we won't either. Some of you experience that. Some of you, because of your positions of extreme love, maybe it's in the area of justice. Maybe it's the area of sanctity of life. Maybe it's the area of caring for immigrants and refugees, caring foster care. You receive feedback and criticism and opposition. Let me remind you today that as we take a position of extreme love, we can expect that. Yes. But I want to leave you with three quick things from Jesus on how to handle that type of opposition. Here's the first, real quickly. I believe we learn these from Jesus. 
as you receive criticism, as you receive opposition for loving extremely, would you enter their life experiences? Let me remind you of this. Jesus obeyed the law. It wasn't like Jesus just walked around and tried uh, purposely just disregarded the law. He was raised as a Jewish boy. He respected the Torah. He said in the New Testament, I've come not to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill it. Jesus understood where the Pharisees were coming from. Though they were wrong, while he was addressing the hardness of their heart, he wasn't purposely just trying to throw away the law. But he put himself in their experiences. As you face and have these discussions of various opinions, difficult issues where there are no easy answers, can I just encourage you to put yourself in the life experience of the other person who's attacking you? to try to walk in their shoes, to try to listen to their perspective, which leads us to modeling Jesus to them. Though Jesus was criticized, he was opposed and ultimately killed, Jesus didn't cancel anybody. Yet we cancel each other. And both sides are guilty of it. Jesus didn't cancel people. Model how Jesus responded. Sure, he got upset at times, but he responded with grace and truth. And we can't get that out of order. Grace first. Finally, distinguish between liking and loving people. I can't speak for Jesus. I'm going to ask him when I get to heaven, but here's my guess. Lord, forgive me if I'm wrong. I don't think Jesus liked everybody. (laughs) I, I know he loved everybody. But you can't tell me when Judas Judas stabbed Jesus in the back with 30 pieces of silver and betrayed him that he liked Judas in that moment. He was fully God, but he was fully human. He felt betrayal just like you and I did. But somehow in the midst of not liking, he still loved them. So the message today isn't that you have to like everybody. Of course not. You're not going to like everybody who sees different. You do got to love them. And how do we love people? Well, there's a few verses that we like to read at weddings and then we seem to forget at other times of the year. But Paul said, love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It's not irritable, keeps no record of being wronged, doesn't rejoice about injustice but rejoices whenever truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith, always hopeful and endures through every circumstance. So picture in your mind that person who you're receiving criticism, who you're receiving opposition from. Could be at work, could be the one on your Facebook or Instagram or Twitter. Picture their face. Jesus would say to us, be patient with them. Be kind. Don't be proud or rude. Don't demand your own way. Don't be irritable. Don't keep a record of wrong. Never give up. Never lose faith. Would you stand to your feet?
Father, I wish there was an easy way that we could just become like you. There was a prayer we could just pray. (laughs) We could just have the elders lay hands, anoint us with oil, and instantly we'd be like you and love people like you. But that's not the case. Yet in spite of that, you still have called us to strive to be like you. In fact, you said be perfect. That's impossible. Lord, help us, though, to love. Help us to love extremely. In this culture of death, let us be the best advocators for life from womb to tomb. And as the hits come and the criticism comes, let us respond in a gracious and loving way as you did. Empower us by the power of your spirit. Almighty God, amen.